Philippians, continuing through chapter 3. St. Paul writes to the early church, people just like you and me, saying, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or I have already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not myself yet, consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on. Was the goal to win the prize for which Christ has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take a view of such things. And if on some point you think differently, that too will, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. God always blesses the reading of God's holy word. Come Holy Spirit, lead us again. Pray the words of my mouth and the thoughts in all of our hearts would be pure and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I confess something to you. I did not get very far in this passage uh, because this is a Humdinger, as you might say in my generation, or as our children Jack and Grace might say, bro, bro. This is about struggle and striving. And we're going to take about three verses of this today because it is a powerhouse. Can you take a punch? Hold that thought. Being a Christian is hard. There is grit to Paul's description of the Christian life. This is no vacation we are called to. Struggle and strive. Struggle and strive. Theologian George Hunsinger, who mentored Jill and I in seminary, wrote this about this passage. Faithfulness to Christ does not mean complacency. It means striving to live in accord with the grace that is given and received. You heard tensions in that passage. We're given it, but we need to keep going for it. 
It's real and active, and yet it's coming, right? It's now, and it's not yet. It's there, but it's to be embraced. Those are tensions within Scripture, and I don't think they're necessarily meant to be resolved. We live in those tensions, right? But as our Reformed Presbyterian tradition really has harnessed and grabbed a hold of, I think wisely and biblically, it's really important that we remember that none of this striving or straining that we do would ever be possible without the grace of God working in us. As St. Paul says, I yet not I, but Christ in me, right? We work at our salvation, as St. Paul says earlier, for it is God at work in us. So we work his working. That is trippy and mind-bending and mind-blowing and cannot be harnessed by our simple logical causal categories, but we live in it. We work it out as God works in us, and we press on. So what does it look like to press on? What does working out God's grace in our life mean? What does a good workout look like for Christians? Paul gives us three keys in this passage, three keys to to working out this grace. Number one, we redefine power. Number two, we redefine suffering. And number three, we forget. We got to look at how Paul deals with this. So he 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 founded a church in Philippi under stress. Read Acts sixteen. Philippi was a mess. He took all kinds of hits. Literally, he got beat up there. He uh, upset the locals. They got ticked at him because his preaching impacted them financially. He was hauled into jail. He was was uh, persecuted. And now the church he founded there under stress is itself under stress. And then he's writing to them while he's under stress, under house arrest, probably in Rome. Stress, stress, stress. How does he deal with this? Well, he's, he, he does give advice and counsel and, and specific things that you can do. And we can find that in Philippians and his other letters. But Paul's program has its heart, its beating heart in verse 10. And it's this. He says, I want to know Christ. And what does that mean? Yes, he says, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Mind blown. Well, this isn't a quick fix. This isn't three steps to changing your life situation. It's not that that stuff is unimportant and unhelpful. It can be helpful. But for Paul, all those pieces of advice and ideas and insights sit within this larger reality. And that reality is defined by Jesus Christ. Number one on Paul's agenda, I want to know Christ. That kind of resets everything. Sitting there under house arrest, under the thumb of an oppressive regime. I want to know Christ. Thinking about his church back in Philippi that he founded and that is struggling under the force of misguided people. He he says, I want to know Christ. Thinking about how bad things were. He's got some PTSD maybe from how he was abused in Philippi. I want to know Christ. 
What does that mean? Well, he tells us, it means a lot, but he, two key things in verse 10. Power of resurrection, participation in sufferings. And then he says one more thing later about forgetting. Resurrection, suffering, and forgetting. That's our program, as Paul outlines it, of knowing Christ here. Now there's much more to it, but these are three things he emphasizes today. Paul's program of knowing Christ first means power is no longer defined by earthly dominance. Paul can't be feeling particularly dominant right now. (laughs) He's not dominant. He's dominated. He couldn't have felt very powerful, right? He's beat up in Philippi and other places. He's jailed in Philippi. He's arrested in Jerusalem. Now he writes this after being arrested in Rome. He was beaten multiple times in his ministry. He was falsely accused. Clearly, the power Paul has is not rooted in feeling all that powerful in earthly terms. His power comes from something utterly outside, different, breaks into the now. It's nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus. And he talks about the resurrection of Jesus as a future thing over the horizon. Think Lord of the Rings when the Battle of Helm's Deep, if you know the film, you know the story, and they're waiting and and they say there's an army coming of the orcs and all the big baddies and an army bred for only one purpose, the destruction of mankind. It'll be here by sunrise. You know, oh goody, right? And then Aragorn says, this is a good sword. And he says, there's always hope. And that hope comes in the morning. When Gandalf rolls over the mountain horizon with this army of light. Resurrection. Christians live between the now and the not yet, right? So in Paul's mind, resurrection elsewhere is a real thing that impacts us now by the Holy Spirit of God living in us. And it's a promised future. So it's as if we could say we can see that light of resurrection peeking over the horizon and that activates the hope in us. And those things somehow relate. So resurrection isn't here yet, but it's somehow alive and present. You can see like if he's in chains and suddenly the light comes in and shines on his face and of peeking over the horizon of resurrection and it affects even how he views his chains and he's like these ain't these ain't so bad look what's coming right perspective power defined as what's coming what's up ahead it's not going to always feel powerful sometimes you're going to feel like in earthly terms like you're on losing anything but resurrection's coming and resurrection's alive in us But it may not always result in you feeling successful, right? Power in Paul's mind is not dominance. It's not always winning. Sometimes he does well. Sometimes he doesn't. Read the book of Acts. It's a mess. It's up and down, right? But he defines power by resurrection power. Which to rise, something dies, right? So there's resurrection because something dies. So sometimes what dies is stuff that doesn't work out. But there's always a resurrection to look forward to. Resurrection promise supercharges Paul's imagination so that he can hope in the face of a church that's in trouble, in the face of a past that's oppressive, in the face of a future that in temporal earthly terms is uncertain. He doesn't know what's coming down the pike, but he knows what's coming over the mountain. 
resurrection promise supercharges Paul's imagination. So he can look at his chains and say, ain't so bad. Remember that from Rocky, Mr. T? Ain't so bad. He can look at his bruises and say, so what? The light of resurrection promise. We are a people of resurrection promise. You know what? When we're looking in that direction long enough, people notice. Because we look different. Much as it's a mess around us, our very bodies may be failing. You Maybe you've seen this in a dying person. We don't romanticize death. Death is awful. Suffering is awful. But I'm telling you, I've been at bedside of the dying. And there are often times when you can see resurrection promise comes in. When my father-in-law, dear Pop A, we love you, he died of dementia a few years ago. And as he was dying in his final days, you know what happened? It was as if a light and power came over him and his body, his skin became smooth where it was rough. He took on this almost angelic look to him. It was like he was being translated, beginning to be translated by that resurrection promise on the horizon that was pulling him in. So he looked different. And even in his dying, he became a witness to what was coming. You see, that's the pattern. Even though we die, we live because we live in light of what's coming up over the hill. Where do you need to focus more on resurrection, hope, and power right now? It looks bleak, but what's coming over the hill? Look up. Where do you need to focus on that right now in our wider culture? Not so much on winning the culture war, not so much on winning the fight or argument or battle, but looking up and letting that ultimate victory shine in you, letting that work in you. Whether you feel like a winner in our society or not, we win in Jesus. So we win, we redefine power not by winning, but by resurrection that's coming and that activates a live hope in us. We redefine power. Second, we redefine suffering. Suffering is not failure for Paul. Suffering is fellowship. Now this, this is trippy. This is why I was here till midnight last night. While I was working on this sermon at quarter nine this morning before the first service, while I was rewriting it before this service, this is a trippy claim. Participation in Christ's sufferings. Now, by that, we don't say that we participate in his atonement. No, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's done. We can never atone for our own sins. Christ did that. What Paul means is participating in suffering through obedience. To Christ's commands and who he would have us be. So remember the Corinthian or the Philippian church and other churches. They face spiritual, economic, legal fights, imprisonment, physical confrontation, beatings again, Acts 16. He's under house arrest in Rome, we think in Acts 28 when he's writing this. It's easy to have a mindset that Christianity is like a break or a vacation or, you know, following God. And there is a, there is an element of that. It rejuvenates us. It is the, it is a nap. It is a resting in the Lord. It is that. But it ain't only, it ain't only that. Follow Jesus and you're going to take a punch or two or three. Hopefully not literally. Some people have. But at least metaphorically or emotionally. It's always been that way. We serve a suffering servant. I think Conor McGregor is hilarious and fascinating. And I admire his chutzpah and I'm not endorsing him on the whole as a whole being, but I think he's fascinating. But he's not my Lord. We serve a suffering servant 
who doesn't defeat the devil in the octagon, defeats him on the cross. Can you take a punch? He did first. This is less MMA and more like, I don't know, ministering to crocodiles or something, you know. We are, right? This is what God did. Taming, riding the bulls of humanity. I don't know what metaphor you want to use. And you're going to get gored? This is what God does in Jesus Christ. And Paul pushes it further. He says, um, this isn't only suffering to be like Jesus. This is a suffering to be with him. When you suffer, you're not just being like him. When you suffer, you're being, you're, you're being with him. You're intimate. The NIV renders the Greek word koinonia here. It's an awesome Greek word. It might be my favorite Greek word. It means participation. It is a, it is a huge idea. We participate somehow in the mystery of God. Not that, again, we don't affect salvation, but we part, Jesus does it all. That's the clear biblical teaching. It's Jesus alone who saves us. But somehow, mysteriously, when we suffer for our faith, we're participating in his suffering of obedience, in his obedience to the Father. Where are you called to view suffering differently? Not as losing, not as weakness, but as being with Jesus. Who, all due respect to Conor McGregor, he's not Conor McGregor. He's a suffering servant. There's a different kind of strength. The strength to take a punch. Metaphorically and God forbid, maybe even physically. Where are you called to view, to view suffering and struggling as participation with Jesus? Whew, that's a hard one, and I don't say that lightly, because who wants to sign up for that? Nevertheless, if you follow this Lord, you're going to find yourself there. You're going to find yourself taking hits. And that's not, oh my gosh, I must have taken a wrong turn. No, sometimes the turning with Jesus will lead you right there. Participation in his sufferings. That's what led Paul. Third and finally, striving to work out the grace of God in our lives. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about how to strive, how to work the program. You redefine power as resurrection, not dominance. You redefine suffering as participation in fellowship, not failure. And then lastly, here you go. Get ready for this. You forget stuff. Forget it. That's part of this. Now, Check it out. There's all kinds of places in scripture that tell us to remember. Remember this, remember that, remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. You know, that's a biblical command. Here, he's saying forget. You know the old thing, forget about it. Forget about it. Scholar H.A. Kent points out that forgetting here does not mean obliterating a memory from the past. Paul knows his past. He talks about his past in the earlier in the chapter, right? He knows his whole history But rather, this is, as Dr. Ken says, a conscious refusal to let our past absorb our attention and impede our progress. It's there, but don't let it be in charge. Part of embracing the program of resurrection life and our striving and our straining, part of that means Of all things, forgetting. 
I wonder what Paul has in mind. I mean, he could have meant forgetting his history of abusing Christians. He was abusive to Christians. He was a bad dude for a while. Maybe he had memories of that and had tremendous guilt. Said, I got to put that behind me. Maybe some of us here have tremendous guilt about things we did even to Christians in the past. We got to put that behind us. Or it could be that Paul is remembering all of his former status as a big, you know, original OG. We talked about original gangster Jewish guy who had all these stats and all this street cred and he was the man. And he had to lay that down. No, I ain't that anymore. I'm not, I ain't so bad, you know, so to speak. He had to lay that, he had to forget that. Lay down all those so-called qualifications. Or maybe he had to forget about the fact that he had these successes in churches that he was just riding on. Like, I founded a church here and here and here and I'm a successful pastor and this and that. Who knows? We don't know. He doesn't say what he forgets. But either way, if you forget a bad, if you, if you, sometimes memories of bad things can hold us back and accuse us and cause us to feel condemned. Sometimes memories of good things that we've done can cause us to be complacent. Either way, they can shackle us and undercut our striving. God wants more for us and there's more of God for us to have. And so St. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. And that is an athletic analogy. He says, I press on. So part of our program is to forget. Or do you need to let go of the past? Either because it's making you complacent and you're resting your laurels. Or because it's making you feel condemned. In the name of Jesus, forget it. Forget it. So can we go the distance? Are you ready? Can we take a punch? Well, only by his grace. We are to set our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It's the only way. Because this stuff about power and suffering will scramble your brain and everything so much of our culture Bless it. I love a lot about it. But there's things in our culture that are going to tell you exactly the opposite. We know this. Jesus' program is in some key respects profoundly countercultural. And it will make you stand out. It will be swimming upstream. But we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we... By his grace, see power, not as dominance, but as resurrection. By his grace, we see suffering and, and failure, uh, suffering not as failure, but as fellowship with him. And by his grace, we forget and let go so we can get going. May it be so for you and for me too. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.